Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. In each episode, we choose a saga, explore its themes and the story, and then we judge the actions of its characters at the Saga Thing. And today is a very special day for the two of us. <laughs> yes, it is. Today is the day <laughs> we tackle Vigeland Saga, the last of our sagas of the warrior poets. I feel like uh, we should be throwing some confetti, maybe drinking some champagne or something here. Maybe a little plate of cocktail weenies. Yeah, well, if that's what you're into, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, we've been working on these for a while, and while it's been great exploring this whole genre of the sagas, I think we're, uh, we're ready to move on. Definitely. Now, doing them in succession as we have really, I think, highlights some of the nuances of these otherwise formulaic sagas. True, but it also highlights the formulas. <laughs> Are you saying that's a good thing or a bad thing? I, I can't really tell. Just a thing. Just a thing. Uh, either way, I think we're both ready to be through with these, mm-hmm. moving on to something maybe a little bit less romance-oriented. Maybe something more epic in style and scope. Well, don't get ahead of yourself there, John. we still got this one to deal with. <laughs> uh, it, it's a good one, though. I don't want you to sell it short. I really like this one. Me? You wanted confades for starting the episode. Well, I am a little uh, tired of the uh, the warrior poets now. Well, anyway, this is one of the more uh, – uh, one of the less well-studied sagas, I suppose. Uh, and in fact, uh, neither one of us was familiar with it beyond the most general idea of its plot. No. Uh, but before we get started on the details of our ignorance, uh, why don't you hit the button? Now, one of the most widely ignored sagas in Icelandic literature. Saga Thing presents the last of the warrior poet's sagas. A spectacle of passion like nothing you've seen before. The epic of a violent and troubled age giving way to a new and romantic ideal. The drama of young lovers. Vigeland the Fair, handsome adventurer, son of Thorgrim the Elegant. Ketterid, Holmkill's daughter, delicate woman, sensible and stalwart. The most beautiful girl in all of Iceland. Vigeland's great love. They have eyes only for each other. Driven apart by the scheming of Ketterid's mother, Thorbjörg, and her brutish brothers, Einar and Jokul. Separate, but never alone. With the aid of his trusty brother Trousty, Vigeland will fight for his right to Ketterid against a culture still hostile to the concept of true love. Can these two overcome the bitter adversity keeping them apart, challenge the established tradition, and finally upset the order of the warrior poet sagas? Listen and learn. This is Vigeland's Saga. Now, this is actually one of the things I really enjoy about doing this podcast. You know, finding a saga that turns out to be worth much more of my time and attention than I'd previously given it, uh, which mm-hmm. I think in this case is pretty easy because my experience with uh, Vigeland Saga was limited to casually observing the fact that it was at the end of my collection of warrior poet sagas. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you're hardly alone. Uh, this one is widely ignored. Yeah. Uh, and I get the impression that almost everyone else has more or less the same response to what we did. Mm-hmm. There's almost no critical attention paid to Viglin's saga. Yeah, we've run into a few of these already. Uh, there was, mm-hmm. I think, Henthor's saga, Bjorn's saga. It, it does seem like there's a lot of area still to be covered, uh, at least when it comes to English language scholarship for these things. Yeah, but when someone actually gets around to reading this one, they generally come away sort of grudgingly pleased with it. Oh, yeah. It. I mean, they're not strewing rose petals in its path or anything, but the general agreement is... Um, but what I want to read you is a brief commentary from an 1876 review. 1876? Are you serious? Yeah. Yeah. I, I told you there wasn't much out there. Oh my goodness. Um, this is from a review in the nation of the Magnuson Morris translation. Okay. 
I'll try to put on a 19th century voice. <laughs> Though Veekland is a mere fiction and without any historical value, it is composed with taste and is so successful in imitation of the genuine historical sagas that it might even mislead a reader pretty well acquainted with the sagas in their original form. That's what they sound like? Well, that's, you know, I'm a New Yorker, so that's, that's a, a New Yorker's idea of 19th century speech. Closest approximation. Well, that's at least fairly positive, but it's not surprising that you're having to look back so far, I don't think. Mm-hmm. I mean, the fact is that Vigeland Saga just isn't taken very seriously by most scholars. I mean, even our old, reliable Christensen only devotes a single mm. short paragraph to Vigeland. And most of that's just outlining the plot and dating the saga to the end of the Middle Ages. And he does briefly, uh, he does briefly address the influences on the saga, which are mostly from the more fanciful genres like the Fornolder Solger or the Riddar Solger. Right. So the folkloric sagas are the ones based on continental romances. That's right. Um, and as we're mm-hmm. going to see, these comparisons are actually quite legitimate, but they're not the entire story. No. Um, and this is, this probably isn't what you had in mind, but strangely, some scholars have thought it worthwhile to compare Vigeland's saga's poetry with Krakuma. What? Which we covered in a saga brief earlier this month. That makes no sense. What what kind of connection is that? I've read them both. There's no connection. I, I know we're doing them back to back, but even we can't claim there's any logic to that. It's got to be just a coincidence. Please tell me it's just a coincidence. You didn't plan this. Well, why? Wait, is it? <laughs> what are you hiding? What are you hiding? Uh, well, I'm obviously not going to tell you, am I? I wouldn't be hiding it then. Uh, no, the point is, you're absolutely right. Of course, I am. No, what am I right about? I don't really know. <laughs> uh, the link is that they're nothing alike. Aha! Uh-huh. Uh, the the point of comparison is that Krakomal is generally considered to be atypical in some aspects of its poetry, which we talked about, while Vigeland's saga is cited as a typical example of saga poetry. Okay. Uh, or at least of the more erotic and romantic strain of the genre. What? Uh, yeah, I know. Uh, that comparison was made as far back as Grenville Piggott in th- 1839. Wow. You have been hitting that card catalog pretty hard, haven't you? <laughs> now, do you have any comments on the saga from a period after your childhood? Oh, thank you very much. Uh, I told you there isn't much out there. Okay. So according to this Piggott guy, if our listeners dutifully listen to the Crocomal episode before this one, then their reward is to be familiar with a poem that's nothing at all like the stuff we're about to read. Yeah, that sums it about. Hmm. Well, it has to be said that Vigeland doesn't really fit in well with the other warrior poet sagas um, for a number mm-hmm. of reasons. Uh, in fact, Diana Whaley calls it an antidote to the others, noting that it's much closer to the traditions of the continental romance than the rest. Uh, we mm-hmm. are, she says, in a rather different world in terms of plot, character, morality, and atmosphere than we've seen in the rest of the warrior poets. It's true that Vigeland exists in a slightly different frame of reference from the others. Uh-huh. I mean, it's set earlier. And it's written somewhat later, probably in the 15th century. Mm-hmm. But it's operating from the same stock of plot points, characters, and poetic interludes as the rest of them. True, but as we'll see, there are a few surprises in store for people who think they know how a warrior poet's story is supposed to go. Ooh, suspense? Are we doing suspense now? Well, you just hang in there. I'll tell you later. Nice and cute. <laughs> now, uh, before okay, we, let's get into it. Uh, but before we get too deep into it, did you know that there is an opera based on this saga? Uh, I did not know that. Yes. You're the opera man, so uh, tell us what you know. Well, I'll tell you. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> uh, it's our first Adam Sandler impression in the podcast. So it was a uh, a production by Bennett and Cohen for the Carl Rosa Opera Company in 1890, and it was called Thorgrim. It doesn't tell the whole story of Vigeland Saga, just the, sto- the story of Thorgrim and Olaf. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And it did quite well from what I can tell from the reviews of it. Uh, but unfortunately, there are no huh. productions, uh, recordings, or any other kind of thing that uh, that we can mm-hmm. examine or I can insert into this podcast or give links to. Um, but you can search out the uh, the entire opera. But do you have like the you have the libretto and everything. Like you could, I have the whole thing. Yes, I, I'm. Huh. I'm trying to trick my daughter into playing it by just leaving it on the bench. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck with that. Yeah, it's not going so well. Uh, right. So this is actually – this is one of the shorter – well, it's on the shorter side as a saga. It weighs in at what I would call a bantam weight, 12,596 words. Mm-hmm. So it converts to about 1.38 Chromagel sagas. Okay. So if this chart that you're keeping is accurate, that puts it just a few hundred words behind Cormac's saga, but still well ahead of Gunlog, Serpent Tongue, and Halford, Troublesome Poet. Yeah, but it's missing a cool nickname in the title, which is a little disappointing. Okay. Hey, why aren't you uh, keeping your little uh, – your word count uh, graph on the website? We should have something like that. Uh, because I'm assuming that no one else cares. <laughs> good point. Good point. So <laughs> so where do we begin with this one? I can put it up there. Um, well, okay. So I think we have to begin with the introduction of Harold Fairhair in the first chapter. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah, we've seen Harold mentioned at the start of sagas before, but never quite like in this one. Yeah, uh, okay, so if anyone doesn't recall from our earlier episodes, uh, Harold Fairhair was a late 9th century Norwegian who consolidated his kingship over the land by forcing everyone else to acknowledge him as king, and of course to pay him taxes, mm-hmm. or as he would have put it, tribute. Yeah, in other words, he wanted everyone to pay him protection money, f- protection from himself. Right, yeah, that's more or less how the early Icelanders saw it, yes. yeah. Uh, as various factions lost out to Harald, they fled Norway to found new settlements all over the North Sea, mm-hmm. and they went as far west as Iceland. Uh, and in fact, it's not going too far to say that opposition to Harald was one of the defining characteristics of the settlement generation. That's right. But what's interesting about the sagas is how varied their positions regarding Harald actually are. Um, mm-hmm. He often appears as the kind of boogeyman of the North, but then sometimes the sagas are ambivalent about him, as is the case with Hrofenkel saga. And then other mm-hmm. times the saga's subjects are Harold's supporters. We can see some of those in Erbigis saga and Ail saga and other ones like that. Right, sure. Um, but even within that context, this is a remarkable introduction. Um, Harold, we're told, was the wisest of men and well endowed with all those skills appropriate to his royal dignity. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're told about his generosity, his careful managing of resources – and the high quality of his supporters. In other words, this is not the Harold saga writers were envisioning in the early days of saga writing. Absolutely. But that fits in with what we were saying before. This is a late saga, and it's being written Mm -hmm. about 150 years after Iceland capitulated to Norway. And there's a certain Mm -hmm. sense that some of the old bitterness about Norwegian kingship had faded away by this time. And I, I guess it's not hard to see why. I mean, we're looking at a text written more than 500 years after Harold's rise to power. And at some point, a more distant historical perspective has to enter the equation. But I think there's even more at play here. Uh, this text is also being written around the time of the Kalmar Union. And so there's another layer to the political upheavals and the resulting nostalgias of Icelanders. Do you want to uh, explain the Kalmar Union at all? Or are you going to just drop that in there and move on? <laughs> um, I mean, we can cover it, but let's keep it brief. Uh, so the, the Kalmar Union uh, was a political unification of Sweden, Norway, Denmark, and their subsidiary lands, which included Iceland and Greenland. Oh, Greenland. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, which came together at the end of the 14th century. It, um, I guess you can say it, it, it was essentially a defensive move by the Scandinavian countries to counterbalance the power of the Hanseatic League, Ooh. which was a German-led confederation that was dominating Northern Europe at the time. Well, down the rabbit hole we go. You said this was going to be brief. <laughs> 
This is brief, believe me. Uh, ultimately, the Kalmar Union was unstable, and it lasted for only just over a century. Mm-hmm. Uh, it did little to improve the lives of Icelanders, and in the long term turned out to be disastrous for the island, because the Norway-Denmark combination that resulted from the Union really wasn't terribly interested in Iceland, apart from its productivity as a fishing center. Yeah, but things weren't all bad, dis- despite the arrival of the Black Death, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um I actually know a little bit about the 15th century in Iceland, but mostly from the religious developments. I also know that Iceland benefited from increasing demand throughout Northern Europe for Icelandic cod, especially in England mm-hmm. and Germany. Um, uh, the 15th century is, uh, I think, a very fascinating time in Iceland, and I'd love to spend more time talking about it. But I'm not sure mm-hmm. yet how much light this sheds on the saga itself. So let's get back to the task at hand, Mr. Digressions. Well... <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, I'm not the one who had to spend time showing off his knowledge of the 15th century. Uh, so, it's just, all right. So this, this saga starts with a much more positive view of Harold than we're used to. Yeah, I thought so too at, at first. Uh, mm-hmm. as you get deeper into the first chapter though, it's not entirely positive. The narrative right. still makes a point of saying that Harold is ruthless and imposes high taxes. And, and this is the part I found most interesting. It says that the king seized everything and quote, Many men of high station fled from Norway, for those who came from great families did not tolerate the king's taxes. So the people who flee the king's yoke of oppression, as the saga puts it, still look like the independent-minded mm-hmm. Icelanders that we're used to. It's true. Um, the author seems to want to have it both ways. He's, he's playing into the convention of the Icelanders as freedom-loving expats, mm-hmm. but he lacks that tone of visceral hatred toward Harold that some of the earlier sagas sound. Mm-hmm. Uh, in any case, this saga is about some of the families that stay behind in Norway. Right. It's almost like he's trying to play both sides to some degree, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah. So our story is going to start out with Viglund's grandparents' generation, but it moves very quickly. So there's an early flurry of names, and it hopefully will sort itself out soon. Now, I isn't there always? I had to create a little genealogy for myself on the blank page before the saga starts, and uh, mm-hmm. I, I got to say, it filled up very quickly in the first five pages. <laughs> I was constantly flipping back and forth. Um, we start with three... So get your pen and paper ready, right. everyone. We're going to start with three earls named Thorir, Ketil of Ramarike, and Eric of Rogaland. All three of these are supporters of King Harold, and they all live in Norway. Okay, so let's start with Thorir. Um, Thorir is what I would call an extreme helicopter parent. <laughs> he has one daughter named Olaf the Radiant. Mm-hmm. He's devoted to her care. But he won't let any man see her or talk to her. So, and he, he means it. He has an entire compound built with fences and locked gates. And he turns away any man who comes to try and win her. That's nice. And, you know, as I read that, I mm. thought it sounded a lot like Thora Fortress Heart from Ragnar Saga, which mm-hmm. I, maybe is not a total coincidence. There are a lot of formulaic elements to the later sagas. And this idea of the Forbidden Princess shows up periodically. Um, but there's no dragon this time unfortunately. No, uh, but there are going to be a number of rivals vying for Olaf's hand. Uh, Earl Eric has three sons, Sigmund, Helgi, and an illegitimate son named Thorgrim. Mm -hmm. He loves all three of his sons, but Thorgrim is treated with less respect than the others due to his what we'll call extramarital origins. That's a nice euphemism. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, Well, it didn't seem as if anyone in Eric's court makes much of an issue of Thorgrim's parentage, so I thought we ought to keep it polite. <clears throat> There's actually a lot of variety in how illegitimate children are treated in the sagas, and it seems like the cultural expectation was that each family would sort it out for themselves. Now, sometimes, mm-hmm. as in Thorgrim's case, the illegitimate son is especially loved by the father, uh, Jon Snow, 
And so he's <laughs> and so he's helped to an advantageous position in society. Usually, though, the position involves having to move on from the family home at some point, since the legitimate sons mm-hmm. or son would uh, expect to inherit their father's land and position. Well, that's almost exactly what happens here. When when King Harold comes to visit Eric, the Earl introduces his three sons to the king, and Thorgrim is quite forward. He pushes himself past his brothers and gives the king a big hug. This seems like a really big breach of protocol. Are you an expert in Norwegian royal protocol? Oh, yeah, of course. I'm writing a little monograph on the subject right now. <laughs> oh, well, that'll be useful. Yeah, we'll get back to uh, In this case, it, it works out. Uh, Harold thinks Thorgrim is a charming little scamp. <laughs> uh, so he gives him an arm ring, and when he leaves, he takes the boy on as his valet. Thorgrim isn't popular with the jealous hangers-on in Harold's retinue, uh, and they begin to mockingly call him Thorgrim the Elegant. See, I always assumed that Thorgrim was just elegant. No, they just, they, they are mocking his pretensions. Yeah. Uh, right. It's as we, well, we'll get into this with the nicknames, but it's not a compliment. <laughs> uh, now Thorgrim spends some time traveling around with Harold and has a few adventures. Uh, and on one occasion when mm-hmm. Thorgrim is serving at a table of one of Harold's men, he accidentally spills some drink onto a boisterous man named Grimm. Grimm begins shouting as a boisterous man named Grimm might, and he makes uh-huh. an unkind reference to Thorgrim's background. Well, let's not mince words. He calls him a whore's son, more suited to feeding slop to swine than drink to respectable men. <laughs> Those are harsh words. Those are very harsh words. And, and you know, Thorgrim's not the sort of guy to let that kind of thing go. So he draws his sword and runs Grimm through. Wow. Reasonable. Uh, I do have to kind of wonder why the serving boy is carrying a sword, but okay. Yeah. Well, Harold supports Thorgrim's right to kill Grimm for the insult, and he offers to pay compensation to Grimm's cousin, who also happens to be the host. And it hmm. has to be said that Grimm apparently wasn't much liked by anyone because that's the end of it, and the feasting goes on. <laughs> Did they at least clear the corpse away? You know, the text doesn't actually say, but you would assume so. Or at least kick it under the table. Right, well, presumably when they cleared away the soup. Bowls. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anytime, uh, anyway, uh, sometime later, King Harold invites a number of important earls to his court, and among them are Olaf's father Thorir and Earl Kettle of Ramarika. Right. Now, we mentioned a little while ago that there were three important earls in our story. Well, Kettle is the third one. He's a firm supporter uh-huh. of Harold's, a renowned dueler with two dozen home gong victories to his credit. He has two sons, mm. Gunlaug the Boisterous and Sigurd the Wise. He's also got a young daughter named Ingibjorg, but his wife died in childbirth. So he's looking for a foster mother for his kids, and he's also heard of the lovely Olaf. Right, and that's all well and good, but of course... Uh, by now, we know how this is going to go in the Warrior Poet Sagas. Mm-hmm. Thorgrim sees Olaf at court and immediately falls in love with her. They meet in private a few times. No, wait a minute, wait a minute. Thorir yep. builds an entire Ultramax prison to keep Olaf from prying eyes of men, <laughs> and then he brings her along to a gala at the king's court? Well, what better place for Olaf's quinceanera? Oh, is that what it is? <laughs> She's of age. She's beautiful. And the upkeep on that security compound has got to be expensive. Well, it is true that he's not against her marrying at all. He just wants to control who she marries, which is kind of important. Right, right. Uh, and at Harold's, Thorir can survey the eligible bachelors of Norway and look for a suitable young man with the potential to sweep Olaf off her feet mm-hmm. via the time-honored method of being rich and sucking up to her father. <laughs> so he's looking for an 80s teen movie villain to marry his daughter? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Hey, yeah, he kind of is. Um, can we get Billy Zobka to play a suitor? 
Thorgrim does have a, a, a certain Daniel the Karate Kid vibe to him now that you mention it. <laughs> I didn't mention no? it. Uh, anyway, uh, Olaf seems to be in love with Thorgrim, but her father ignores Thorgrim's offer to marry her. As you'd expect. But that's not going to yeah. stop Thorgrim. He visits Olaf at her home, and though Thorir says no to the proposal, Thorgrim and Olaf uh, continue to be on good terms. Right, and once again, we're forced to ask about the point of that compound. Why have an impregnable fortress for your daughter if you're going to let her out when an earl's illegitimate son comes nosing around the place? I totally agree. But Thorir doesn't have to wait long before another proposal arrives in the form of Earl Kettle and 30 of his men. Now, Kettle... <laughs> well, the proposal's only from Kettle. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's an awkward <laughs> marriage. Kettle and King Harold both attend the feast at uh, Thorir's house, and, and with the support of Harold, Kettle wins Thor's permission to marry Olaf. Oh, that's handy. Did anybody ask Olaf? No, no, they didn't. There's 30 men there. <laughs> but I'm glad you mentioned it. We are starting to get into a really interesting theme of this particular saga, the issue surrounding consent in marriage. Oh, yes. So so what's happening here? Well, I, mean, I don't want to spoil anything, so let's just work our way through this saga first, and then we can chat about consent theory in 15th century Iceland after we finish. I, oh, well, <laughs> sounds riveting. I, I will just say this to our listeners. Pay attention to issues of consent in this saga. It's a very big deal. Yeah, sure. Uh, actually, the author underlines Olaf's lack of consent in her own marriage with the poem's first verse. Uh, and I guess I'll take this one. Okay. I know the glad gold warden wields better words than others. The sound of these words will wound me in this world. Here dwells no handsome man who'll draw my love to him. But one received my oath, and ever that bright man I'll love. I love the understatement of the line immediately following that verse. Most people were convinced that Olaf would have rather had Thorgrim. <laughs> <laughs> See? And they didn't need to sit around parsing Olaf's poem or anything. No. Um, there's really a noticeably different tone to this saga, isn't there? I mean, it's got all the elements of the other warrior poet sagas, but it seems to be having an additional conversation with later medieval continental writing. And like mm-hmm. those continental romances, it spends a bit more time exploring the character's feelings than earlier sagas. Ooh, I'm getting all excited now. This is good stuff. <laughs> well, you're in good company. Yeah. Thorgrim is also a little worked up. <laughs> if I can drag us back to the text. Uh... Thorgrim tells off King Harold for supporting another man's claim on Olaf using the time-honored I saw her first argument. It works. Re- yeah. Rejects Harold's offer to compensate him with the hand of Kettle's daughter Ingeborg in marriage and resigns from Harold's company. This reminds me of how I met my wife, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Harold is also engaging in the game of promising women in marriage without their consent. Uh, sure, but is that really your biggest issue with the situation? Yeah, why? How old is Ingeborg? Um, oh, yeah, <laughs> that's creepy. Uh-huh, yeah. Uh, unless we've had a massive leap forward in time, she's got to be a very young child. Yeah. Uh, her precise age isn't given, but the text implies pretty strongly that Kettle hasn't been a widower all that long. Mm-hmm. And Ingeborg's mother died giving birth to her. So, yeah, ew. Now, maybe he wants to put her in the bullpen and save her to later. Good lord. <laughs> okay, so now that you mention it, that's probably the effect the author's going for, but um, the good news is that Thorgrim doesn't take the offer. Yay! 
Instead, <laughs> he, he rushes to the wedding feast at Kettle's home, where Kettle claims that Olaf is his because her father has the right to make such decisions for her. And Thorgrim doesn't bother to argue at all. Instead, he steals the bride away by having his men extinguish the lights in the hall to allow him to escape with Olaf. Right. Now, Thorgrim and Olaf know they can't stay in Norway now that they've offended a powerful friend of the king. Mm-hmm. So, like others before them, they set sail for Iceland. Yes. They settle in the Snaffelsnest region, and word later comes that Thorgrim has been outlawed in Norway. Which is not a surprise, no. but we are not done with Earl Kettle. He'll be popping up oh, again. Oh, not by a long shot. Yeah. Uh, but stick a pin in that for now, because we're going to spend some time with Thorgrim and Olaf's happy marriage and their kids. Sure, we got to get to this generation of the <laughs> yeah, title no character. Right? A, they settle down and have three children in three years. Uh, two sons named Trausti and Viglund, mm-hmm. and a daughter named Helga. It is about time. I mean, this is Viglund's saga, and I was starting to wonder if we'd ever hear the guy's name. And we just <laughs> covered a whole opera's worth of material. I know, I know. And, and of course, be- because this is a warrior poet saga, we need a neighbor's daughter for Viglund to fall in love with. Ah, yes. And so? And conveniently, mm-hmm. we're introduced to a neighbor whose name is Holmkell of Foss. Um, Holmkell and his wife Thorbjorg also have two sons and a daughter. The boys are called Jokul and Einar, and the daughter is a local beauty by the name of Kettlerid. Kettlerid? Yeah. That's quite a name. Well, she's quite a woman. She's also part of a nearly (laughs) unique relationship in the sagas. Kettlerid and her mother Thorbjorg don't like each other at all. Oh, yeah. No, I find this fascinating. Uh, Most sagas don't really attend to the relationships among women. Mm -hmm. And when they do, they usually look at women of the same generation. Holgerth and Bergthor in Jarl's saga, for example. Right. Or... Asgard and my thing, my thing woman, Aud Vestin's daughter, scary. in Gisli Saga. <laughs> and those relationships usually exist as an extension of the social world of men. Asgard and Aud are married to the Sorsen brothers, and Bergthor and mm-hmm. Halgerth are married to Njal and his best friend Gunnar, respectively. Um, their interactions only take place because of their menfolk. And sometimes mm-hmm. their relationships complicate the relations of men, but they rarely stand in the center of the saga narrative itself. Right, and put it this way, uh, if there were a Bechdel test for sagas, it would have about the same pass rate as Hollywood films, oh which is to say it would have an abysmal pass rate. A Bechdel test for sagas? Yeah, um, if if listeners don't know what the Bechdel test is, go look it up. Uh, it's worth knowing about. Right. Uh, it has something to do with female characters talking to each other about something other than a man, right? Well, yes, okay. <laughs> if you want to just tell them about it, then yes, Well, I'm that's trying it. to save them the trouble of looking it up. So Sure. Now, you know, despite the fact that it is a terrible movie, Frozen does quite well in the Bechdel test. So, there's that. Oh, my. Uh, you realize you just invited our first hate mail, don't you? Listen, if you want to argue with me about the inner workings of Frozen, I'm willing to do it. But I have a daughter <laughs> named Elsa, and uh, maybe that's tainted my appreciation of the film a little bit. Oh, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. Everywhere this poor girl goes, she's hit with the let it go, let it go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> back to the... D- I actually have to be honest, I haven't seen it. Oh, good for you. Uh, so back to the Bechdel test for a moment. I want to d- linger on this, Mr. Digressions. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if I understand it all correctly, uh, there are mm-hmm. some sagas that would pass and they do show women interacting in meaningful ways. Um, yes. Take the example of Eric the Red Saga, where tensions over the conversion to Christianity are partly played out through the interaction between the young Christian Gudrid and the fortune-telling diva Thorbjorg of Greenland. Yes, you know, and what I find especially interesting about that is that Gudrid and the fortune-teller also represent different generations. Yeah. 
And the question of religion is inextricably linked to generations in Eric's side. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, that's kind of how the story is told. In Viglund, we get a different kind of generational divide. A mother and daughter who just don't get along. That's true, but it's in part because uh, the mother doesn't like girly things. She doesn't like sewing, and she doesn't want to teach her daughter to do any of that stuff. Right, right. Uh, although it is a, it's important to keep in mind, this isn't really a fully fleshed out relationship. We're never told why Thorbjörg hates her daughter so much. That's true. Uh, although that may have something to do with it, right? That, that, uh, Kettlerid is, as the female lead in a romance, corresponds more closely to a kind of generic ideal of womanhood. Right. And Thorbjörg does not. Um, but, Whatever the reason, it's a very, it's a rare and intriguing relationship to have a look at. Yeah, and that's not the only reason that Ketterid's worth paying attention to. She's also much more outspoken and independent-minded than the women we've been seeing. I mean, even Steingard from Cormac's Saga isn't as formidable as Ketterid. For example? Well, when Viglund tries to turn a conversation between them toward a, a pledge of love, she refuses initially and gives three pretty good reasons. <laughs> right. First, she says, men are too fickle to trust in such things. Second, mm-hmm. because she doesn't wish to hurt her father, whose opinion she respects. And third, because her mother would never allow it. You know, and the order of those is interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, she makes a point of smacking Viglund down with the men are fickle line before acknowledging that her parents are in the way. Yeah. She does soften the blow a bit by saying that she would prefer to marry Viglund if she had her way. But she doesn't see any easy way for that to happen, given the circumstances. Oh, see? See, you you can't say something like that to a guy whose parents eloped by escaping from a hall full of armed men. Yeah. That's just going to encourage him. Probably true. But Thorbjorg isn't just a difficult and domineering mother. She's also out of her freaking mind. She's crazy. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> yeah, she's battier than a guano cave. Yeah. And her sons, Einar and Jokul, are also – I think the technical term is cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. Yeah, I mean, they actually, as I'm reading, they remind me of a more vicious version of Corey and Trevor from uh, Trailer Park Boys. What? But uh, since most of our listeners won't get that reference, we'll keep going. <laughs> Half of us don't get that reference. <laughs> Carry on. Of, this is where uh, the saga takes a real turn for the crazy. Let's start with their initial plan to destroy Vigeland's family. Einar mm-hmm. wants an excuse to fight Vigeland's father, Thorgrim, and so he comes up with a plan. He's going to try to seduce Vigeland's mother. <laughs> this is just astoundingly stupid. Yeah. Uh, among other things, he just sort of assumes... That the seduction part is a foregone conclusion. <laughs> right. He he seems to think that he's just irresistible to women. Well, and of course, that's where he's wrong. Olaf is uh, mm-hmm. not a woman to be crossed lightly, and her response is to dress a servant in her cloak, wait until Einar approaches the servant, and then jump into the room dressed as a black-cloaked man with a sword. Oh, she's so cool. <laughs> Oh, she is. (laughs) Einar is frightened of this mysterious warrior in black. And and when Olaf says that Thorgrim's on his way into the house, Einar and Yoke will run away quickly. It's just great. Uh, The use of the dark cloak is a nice touch as well, since, of course, uh, anyone who knows the saga knows this is a signification of someone bent on a killing. Right. But, of course, Thorbjorg and her sons aren't done scheming just yet. No. Uh, Their next plan is to goad Vigeland into a horse fight, pitting his stallion Blekur against their champion fighting horse, Brunin. Yeah, this is another ridiculous plan, since it really doesn't seem to have a clear point at all, aside from maybe embarrassing Viglund by being better than him at animal cruelty. (laughs) (laughs) Right, and of of course it turns out they can't do that right either. Uh, Viglund's horse kicks Brunin's teeth out before biting him to death. Uh, Nay, say it ain't so. I I also want to point out, by the way, the names of these horses just indicate how kind of archetypal this whole story gets at times. Uh 
Uh, Brunin means black horse, and Blecker means pale horse. There you go. The good uh, the they bad. aren't even really given names so much as colors. Yeah. That's not unusual uh, for horses. Anyway, so at that point, uh, after their horse is dead, the brothers and their men grab their weapons. Viglum's group grabs their weapons. And finally, we're just having a big brawl. Which, if that's what you want, you don't really need to lose a horse to do. You know? <laughs> True. Uh, by the time the two sides separate, one of Vigeland's men and two of the brothers' men are dead. Well, that's good for our body count, isn't it? True. But the stupid just keeps coming. <laughs> <laughs> one night, Einar and Yokel sneak onto Vigeland's family's property. They try to steal some horses, but Vigeland's stallion Blaker uh, keeps moving the herd so that they can't catch any of them. And finally, they get so frustrated that they attack Blaker. <laughs> and they turn out to be failures at that, too. <laughs> the stallion fights them both off for hours. Hold, hold on. Presumably, Say that one more time. <laughs> the stallion fights them both off for hours. That's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> Presumably kicking seven kinds of crap out of them in the process. Yeah, it's so ludicrous. Eventually, though, they do remember that they have spears with them, and they're able right. to stab Blaker to death. A moment of silence, please, for one fantastic horse. Uh, I would love to. There's no time, though. <laughs> they have to cover up their crime. Uh, so they drag right. this dead horse to a cliff and they push it off, hoping that it'll look like an accident. <laughs> Absolute criminal geniuses. I know. And then they steal two prize oxen from the property, bring them home, slaughter them, and hang the corpses up in their shed. <sighs> See, now this is suddenly starting to sound like a horror film. <laughs> A horror film with idiots for killers, admittedly, but yeah, still. Sure enough. And when Vigeland and his brother Trousty find Blaker's corpse, it's pretty obvious he has multiple deep stab wounds and he was dragged up to the cliff. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose we should be impressed that they didn't leave their spears in the wounds with a note saying, It weren't us that did it. Love, Einar and Yokel. Worse than that, their father realizes what happened, and he insists on letting Vigeland's dad, Thorgrim, name his own price for the oxen, and the whole thing only brings Thorgrim and their father, Holmkel, closer together. Uh, and they're still not done. No. Their, their mother now contracts with a witch to kill Vigeland and Trousty. And next time the brothers are out fishing, the witch manages to call up a storm that blows their ship out to sea. Ooh. Yes. And so for one brief moment, they think they've succeeded. Yes. And Kettlerid goes into mourning at the thought of losing Vigla. Yeah, it doesn't seem like she even waited very long to, to have those no, feelings. No, no, honestly. Um, but the brothers and their friend Bjorn are able to put into shore a little ways away. Mm -hmm. They spend a pleasant evening with an elderly settler named Thorkel Skinswath, and they row home the next day. It's just unbelievable. Now, this is also one of those moments when Vigeland's saga starts to sound a little, a little bit off for a family saga. Um... Uh, grown men doing violent and stupid things in equal measure. No, it sounds right to me. No, no, that part's fine. <laughs> totally predictable. Uh, but there is a lengthy <laughs> sidebar at this point in the story on the nature of forbidden love, and the entire tone shifts. For a moment, we might be reading the literature of a different culture entirely, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think this is the section you're talking about. Mm -hmm. They had such a secret love concealed in their hearts that their deeply entrenched love and the fruit of their affection could never be uprooted from their hearts. Mm -hmm. For the fire of affection and the flames of love burn all the more intensely and weld together the hearts and minds of lovers all the more tightly, the greater the number of those who wish to injure them. It actually goes on like that for quite a while. Quite a while. And then we're right back into the usual saga hijinks. Yeah. Mm. It's a strange aside, but it's not really out of place, I don't think. It just reflects mm. a changing aesthetic among writers and readers of the sagas, and I think a changing culture as well. 
Sure, but I think it also explains, uh, in part, why this saga isn't universally agreed upon as belonging to the Islendingasovar genre. Mm. There's some really strange stuff going on in here. Anyway, I think we'll talk about all of that in the judgment section, so let's get back to the action. Okay, so a ship's captain now arrives from Norway. Mm -hmm. His name is Hawken, and he's been sent by Vigeland's old enemy, Kettle of Raumarik. Uh, he's been sent to kill Thorgrim to avenge that whole running away with his bride thing. Yeah. Well, and to make matters worse for Vigeland's family, Halkin arrives in Iceland and allies himself with Einar and Jokul, which is not a good thing. Yeah. Halkin's a curious figure. Um, he must be a desirable match because he's being offered marriages everywhere he goes. Must be studly. Well, um, so Kettle first offers his daughter Ingebjorg as the prize for killing Thorgrim. And then Einar and Jokul offer their sister Kettlerid as wife or mistress to Hawken in exchange for his friendship. This is a new low. They want to offer her as wife or mistress? Yes. Mistress? Uh, and the complex moral issues at play here don't seem to bother Hawken in the slightest. They're like the uh, nasty he, stepsisters of folktales, these guys. Oh, they're awful. In this regard. They're just awful. Yeah. Uh, so Hawken is fine with this. He immediately asks them to retrieve Kettlerid from her foster home with Viglund's parents so that he can waste no time in putting the moves on her. And as if this weren't uncomfortable enough already, it's their mother, Thorbjorg, who makes the arrangements to have Kettlerid brought home for Hawkins' enjoyment. It, it's really grotesque. It sure is. Now, Vigeland and Kettlerid are obviously unhappy about the parting, and it's at this mm. point, as he says goodbye to his love, that we finally get a verse out of Vigeland. Well, it's about time. Yeah. He says... I'll never love on earth a young Valkyrie of silk. Men will not observe this, other than you, woman. Fair maiden, mind the oaths and vows made long ago, though an arrogant woman is eager to destroy us. It's not really all that uh, warrior poety. No, it's really not. I think um, Vigland. He may be all the warrior that we could hope him to be, but he's not all the poet we could hope him to be. Well, I wonder if it's not so much Vigeland's fault as the the author who's living so, you know far mm -hmm. enough away from that time period that he's just not into um, – and maybe he knows his audience isn't looking for um, standard skaldic poetry. Right, and I think um, uh, we'll see later on that uh, Vigeland is actually uh, unusual even in this saga for the sort of simplicity and straightforwardness of his lines. Yeah. But I bet if you uh, uh, dig through uh, 15th century Icelandic poetry, you'd find stuff that sounds a lot more like this uh, than you would the stuff that we've been reading. Yeah, no, I actually believe that's that's entirely right. Mm -hmm. um, now, uh, Kellerud does have one ally at home, uh, her father Holmkill. Yeah, I love this guy. He, Yeah, no, he, he, he contrives a plan. He keeps her by his side day and night so that Halkin can't get her alone. Now, this next section involves some fairly typical scenes of rising tension between Vigeland and his enemies. Uh, things get pretty heated at some local games, and Yokel throws a ball into Vigeland's face, which splits his eyebrow open. And when Yikes. Thorgrim sees this, he calls Vigeland his daughter for failing to retaliate for the blow. Oh, boo, Thorgrim. Yeah, gender shaming. <laughs> and in the next game, Vigeland concusses Yokel with a blow to the head and knocks him to the ground. It's a real concussion <laughs> described as a concussion. Yep. Um, meanwhile, Vigeland and Kettlerid meet at the games whenever they can and allow themselves to be seen in affectionate moments together as much as possible. 
Uh, yeah, that, and that, that, that shaming of Vigeland really is interesting. Um, I think a lot of readers of the sagas tend to think of that sort of goading as typically a trick used by mothers and other women. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not all that rare to see older men shaming younger men into action with the same trick. Right, we'll see that a bit. Uh, right. And Thorgrim's clever about it. When Vigeland's brother Trausti asks their father to clarify who he's calling a woman, Thorgrim, instead of directly attacking, uh, points out that the bandage on Vigeland's head looks like a woman's wimple. <laughs> it's a good line. Uh, but, yeah. but meanwhile, things are really heating up between the families. Vigeland and Trausti spend a day visiting Kettlerid at her family's house, and when they head off, they're confronted by a dozen men from Foss, led by Einar and Jokel, who have oh been, uh, I think they're waiting in ambush behind haystacks. Mm-hmm. Um, now, fortunately, Vigeland and Trausti are expecting trouble and came well-armed, and a brawl breaks out. And it rapidly becomes obvious that the men from Foss are outclassed. Mm-hmm. Uh, Vigeland and Trausti kill three men without taking a single wound. Awesome. The survivors run away, and Einar and Jokel cover their embarrassment by claiming that they were the victims of the attack. Wait a minute. So they're claiming that Vigeland and Trausti ambushed a dozen men? Yes. Doesn't that make them look worse? Again, yes. <laughs> uh, but it does help them to finally move their father, who believes their story, and in a moment of anger, agrees to marry Ketelrid to Halkin. Now, once again, the author breaks in to point out that this marriage is made without Ketelrid's consent. Um, mm-hmm. And as we said, that's an important point, and one that this author is really, really working hard to make stand out in the text. And I'm not sure about you, John, but this part of the saga really ticked me off. What's that? <laughs> Well, I, I really didn't want Kettlerid to end up with Hauken. The whole thing bothers mm. me. Okay, but you know the formula of the warrior poet saga. So I do. how are you surprised? I, I don't know if I was surprised, but I was disturbed. Uh, this saga is a little different from the others, and I actually found myself genuinely invested in Kettlerid's developing relationship with Vigland. Sappy as that makes sound? <laughs> I'd, I'd say that's true for me to a degree. Thank you. Now, there's a quality to the writing in this saga that we don't often see in saga literature, or at least that's how I feel right now, having read it recently. <laughs> okay, but you don't mean to say that the other sagas are poorly written. Definitely not. Uh, but right. at the same time, I was really rooting for these two to get together, in part because of the way the narrator handles the lovers. I mean, the agenda here mm-hmm. is different, so the handling of their relationship is different as well. There's a real passion here and an assemblance of what we modern audience understand as actual love. Uh, Think of that passage that you just quoted where the narrator explains the nature of true love and how it's so deeply entrenched and how the fruit of their affection could never be uprooted from their hearts and how the fire of affection and the flames of love burn all the more intensely and weld together the hearts and minds of lovers all the more tightly. You don't think that's a bit Hallmark card? <laughs> well, yeah, you know, under normal circumstances, yes. But here it works for me for some reason. See, I actually prefer the um, the, the simple understated love of a Gisli and Oud. Oh, that's right, nice. Where there's sort of little moments of, of loyalty shown and interreliance mm. uh, shown. I uh, like those as well. But sure. Uh, a lot of what we're seeing in this saga is just taken from continental romances like the Tristan and Assault story. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, the few times Vigeland Saga comes up in scholarship, it's often to reference the awkwardness of these shifts into and out of the prose romance tradition. Look, I'm not saying it's the best written saga in the world, but I think it's pretty well put together. In fact, I think I think it may be one of the more accessible and memorable of the sagas we've covered so far. Ooh, those are strong words. Well, I'm going to stand by them, for now at least, having <laughs> just read the saga. 
now, this is also the only saga that got a real emotional response out of me. I, I remember reading <laughs> the part where Kettlerid is given to Halkin during my daughter's oboe lesson, and, and I had to exert a lot of self-control not to scream out and, and throw this book across the room, which wouldn't have gone over very well at all. I mean, Kettlerid's marriage to Halkin is just wrong on every level. Okay, well, I have to call shenanigans on this only because I seem to remember you getting quite worked up about Henthor. Ah, well, yeah, maybe. But this is a different kind of emotion. Different emotion. Uh, and, of course, the point is to uh, work you up, isn't it? The point is to upset you this way. Yeah, absolutely. It, it just ticks me off partly because it's a victory for Kettlerid's awful mother and her dopey brothers. And, and <laughs> partly because I believed in the love between Kettlerid and Vigland. You can call me a sap if you want, but I felt something. <laughs> Well, if you're having that kind of reaction 600 years after it was written, I'd say the saga author did his job well enough. You're darn tootin' he did. <laughs> uh, I think it's also noteworthy for building that kind of feeling you're talking about that Holmkill soon learns the truth of what happened at the Haystacks, and he has a great deal of regret over having decided Kettlerid's marriage yeah. for her. Even within two paragraphs, he learns. <laughs> right, absolutely. Um, he even then travels with her to the next games that are held, uh, so he allows her to see Vigland again, and he warns Vigland to be on his guard against the plotting of Einar and Jokul. Yeah. Now, for anyone who's confused by these families, Holmkell is essentially warning Vigland about Holmkell's own sons and their treachery. And that's mm-hmm. really serious. And it represents a complete severing of the family loyalty that usually governs saga action. Okay, so I think we have to ask ourselves, why does he do it? Especially since he knows that Vigland is the superior fighter. Uh, is this a case of Holmkell acknowledging Vigeland's claim as his quote-unquote real son-in-law? Or is he just disowning his sons and their scheming at this point? I, I, I'm not exactly sure. I have a couple theories on this. Uh, my first guess would be that this is the saga author wanting us to use uh, – my first guess would be that the saga author wants to use Holmkell and his family as an example of what can happen from a bad match. I mean Holmkell hmm. and his wife are a terrible husband-wife team. I don't think they like each other very much at all. And since no. the sons have this vindictive nastiness of the mother, I guess Holmkill isn't a huge fan of them either, despite the <laughs> blood relationship. Kettlerid, on the other hand, is sweet and good and rational, nothing like her mother. And as a good father, he genuinely seems to want what's best for her and not for himself or his family, which is a real departure from other saga fathers. It's also one of the hmm. things that I think is maybe the second point here. That this saga yeah. author is interested in in breaking away from that tradition of family first and and mm-hmm. looking towards something um, that we'll talk about in the judgment section. Okay. Well, either way, whichever whichever goal he's got in mind, um, the actual narrative at this point is Vigland and Trousty have been alerted by Holmkill, and so they're aware of the dangers they head home. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, they spot another dozen man ambush waiting at the same haystacks they were attacked at before. The same haystacks? Yeah. These guys really suck at surprise attacks. Yup. <laughs> uh, and so this time, the brothers leap up onto the haystacks to fight from higher ground. Right. So this fight breaks out, but no one can get a clean shot at anyone because of the distance between them. I mean, they're essentially just clashing the tips of their weapons together and making angry faces. Right. <laughs> so... Uh, so obviously the smart move here is stay up there, fight off the attempts by Einar and Jokul's gang to climb up, and wait for them to get bored or for someone to come looking for them. You know, maybe hang some shiny things and throw them into the field and they'll run away. <laughs> well, that might be your move, but clearly you mm-hmm. lack the fragile ego and capacity for mayhem of Vigeland Thorgrimson. 
Yokel shouts up to them, We'll know you're not a real man unless you come down here and fight us. What is a man to do in a situation like this? Um, I just want to point out that Yokel and Einar have Hawken and nine more men with them. Well, Vigeland has Trousty, his trusty companion. <laughs> uh, and of course, he has the strength of a man whose masculinity has just been questioned by a schoolyard taunt. Yes. Uh, so, of course, Vigeland and Trousty leap down off the hay and they go on a complete crazy monkey rampage. <laughs> In minutes, seven of the attackers are dead and two more are out of the fight with injuries. Uh, but Trousty is also badly wounded. This is the sort of bloodbath we've been missing in the last few sagas, and mm-hmm. we're not done yet. Yokel now takes charge, commanding Einar to face off against Trousty while Vigeland fights Hauken. Now, of course, that means that Yokel is going to have a chance to rest. Oh, nice for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, meanwhile, Einar and Trousty hack away at each other until both of them fall. Oh, I'm going to miss Einar. His schemes <laughs> were almost as stupid as Narfi's in Cormac's saga. <laughs> That's true. Um, so anyway, now we're down to Vigeland facing off against both Hauken and Yokel. Mm-hmm. Uh, except Yokel still doesn't enter the fight, so Hauken and Vigeland start fighting. Uh, Hauken is an accomplished warrior, and he manages to wound Vigeland badly, but Vigeland finally chops him down. And now, Yokel, well-rested and in full health, attacks the wounded and exhausted Vigeland. It's a titanic struggle. Mm. <laughs> we we don't actually get a description of Yokel, but his name means glacier. And most men with that name are on the large side. And of course, he's been resting up during the fighting. Right. But Vigeland is a fighting fiend. He's in his monkey rampage, as you so eloquently put it. <laughs> and his injuries aren't even slowing him down. Both men are fighting to avenge their fallen brothers at this point. So it's pretty serious mm. stuff. Right. And the fight goes on for hours until it lasts the better part of the day. Uh, Vigeland is slowly weakening from loss of blood, and he realizes he's going to lose unless he does something drastic. But he knows something Yokel doesn't know. What's that? Vigeland is not left-handed. Oh, I, are you proud of yourself? You like you like doing that? <laughs> actually, actually, he is left-handed. Uh, more to the point, he's ambidextrous. Yes, he is. Uh, which is a tremendous advantage in a fight. Uh, he throws his shield and axe up in the air, switches hands and swings the axe with his left hand. Awesome. Yokel is entirely thrown off, can't make the necessary counter move, and Vigeland chops his sword arm off at the elbow. I am calling it right now. That is winning best bloodshed. It's got to. There's no competition. <laughs> it's it's fairly awesome. As, as a lefty myself, uh, I'm a big fan. <laughs> uh, this is, by the way, this is apparently a real fighting technique, although obviously a risky one. Some mistake would leave you dropping your weapon or shield in the middle of a fight. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this case, it does pay off, though, and and Yokel attempts to flee, wounded as he is. Uh, Vigeland's mm-hmm. also too badly wounded to chase him, so he grabs a spear and throws it through Yokel's back and straight out his chest. Yokel crashes to the earth, but Vigeland collapses from loss of blood. It's pretty violent stuff. Love it. Love it. Um, the two injured men from Foss ride off back home and announce that Hauken, Einar, Yokel, Vigeland, and Trousty are all dead along with seven other men. Ketorid, poor woman that she is, hears the news and mm. drops into a faint, which her mother angrily and correctly interprets as a reaction to the news of Vigeland's death rather than that of her brothers. Right. <laughs> Thorbjorg demands that Holmkill ride out and kill Thorgrim in revenge, but Holmkill refuses since, as he says, there's nothing more anyone involved can pay, so what's the point? Th- this is a grim ending to the saga, mm-hmm. but it's not unexpected. Yeah. 
But what is unexpected is that we're not done yet. Oh, no, not at all. The narrative now shifts back to the battlefield where we learn that Vigland is still alive and conscious. Yay! Hooray! <laughs> That's not a tremendous <laughs> surprise since we were already told that he falls as if he were dead. Um, mm-hmm. But he staggers over to his brother where he and we get a real shock. Trousty is alive as well. But both brothers are too badly injured to go any further and all Vigland can mm. do is try to bind up Trousty's wounds. Yeah, this really is a surprise. Um, as we've said before, the brothers in these warrior poet sagas are usually contrasting personalities to the main figure. Uh, Trousty's an exception. He's mostly just a less interesting version of Vigeland. <laughs> I, I really, I honestly figured that his narrative purpose was to get killed. Yeah, so did I. And I, I marked it down as soon as it happened and then was disappointed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but this is the point where this saga really moves into a different tradition from the other poet sagas. The move mm-hmm. is actually somewhat jarring, but it's a nice shift after reading so many of those warrior poet stories in a row. And I think probably, yeah. you know, in a culture where they were reading these kind of things over and over again, you, you at some point you need to shift. You need to do something different. Right. Um, and in this case, the brothers are actually rescued by their father and then hidden away for an entire year while they recover from their wounds. Uh, meanwhile, Kettlerid's mother Thorbjorg is suspicious of the lack of corpses and mourning at Thorgrim's house. Uh, you think they'd have at least tried to do a fake funeral. Right. Uh, and so she gets her father, Einar of Lon, to take up a case against Viglund and Trousty for the deaths of the men from False. Yeah. In this case, we really see the weakness of the law, which is often a theme of the sagas written in the earlier period. Uh, but I think it's interesting to see it here as well. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, the case is won easily. So now we have to deal with a new plot point. The brothers are under sentence of outlawry. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's clear from later context that this is minor outlawry. So a three-year sentence of exile, not the stronger permanent exile. Okay. So the next section of the saga opens with the arrival of two men named Gunlaug the Boisterous and Sigurd the Wise. Remember them? Right. Okay, yeah. Now, we, we mentioned these two way back at the beginning of the saga. These are the sons of Kettle of Raumarik. Uh, the man who was scheduled to marry Olaf until Thorgrim crashed the wedding. It's all coming together like a Shakespearean uh-huh. plot. See that? Gunlaug and Sigurd have been sent by their father to kill Thorgrim again, <laughs> since Hauken <laughs> never got around to it. Uh, uh-huh. But in the tradition of badly executed plots in this saga, they shipwreck off the Icelandic coast and have to be rescued off the beach by Thorgrim. Right. Now, now that should be a golden opportunity for them. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, this is the guy they've been sent to kill, and here he is all by himself. Yeah, sure. It's a great opportunity if you're a complete jerk. He's <laughs> rescuing them. <laughs> and wow. these guys aren't like their father. They're both essentially honorable men, and Sigurd, is, in particular, has taken a vow never to repay good with evil. Which is a weirdly specific oath, given the circumstances. It's a good oath, and it's not its not that weird. And it's not nearly as weird as Gunlaug's oath, which is never to refuse a spot on a ship to someone whose life depends on it. Yeah, hang on to that one. <laughs> um, meanwhile, the brothers spend the winter with Thorgrim's family. They they never learn about Vigeland and Trousty and their convalescent hideaway. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently, they're being hidden really well. But Sigurd does fall in love with Vigeland's younger sister, Helga. Convenient. Mm-hmm. Now, there are going to turn out to be a lot of people getting married by the end of this thing. Yep. Um, so at the end of the winter, Vigeland and Trousty emerge from hiding and on their father's advice, ask Gunlaug for safe passage out of Iceland using the aliases Trouble Prone and Problem Prone. Nice. And Gunlaug can't refuse because, surprise, surprise, he's taken an oath about this very thing. This is getting very convenient. That's true. Uh, 
I, I mean, whether you're, you approve or not depends on personal taste. But from a critical perspective, there's a definite sense of bleed over from the more fairy taleish romantic traditions in this part of the saga. Mm-hmm. Well, most of the sagas have their fair share of plot contrivances, don't they? Let's not get too worked up about it. Well, okay, there is, but there's a lack of artifice to the artifice here, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, I, I really do. Okay. The bones of the story, if we're going to take the book process line for a minute, are usually a little more clothed than they are here. There's almost an amateurish touch about the way these oaths are deployed at this point in the story. They exist in order to force Gunlag and Sigurth into acting a certain way, and they only exist for that reason. Well, as we said, though, the author is thinking in terms of a different sort of writing here, and, and maybe is more interested in playing with those story elements than in satisfying the demands of a critical reading. Ouch. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. Fair Relax. Enough. <laughs> anyway, before Viglin can leave, he sneaks over to Kettlerid's house to announce that uh, he survived. Yay! <laughs> it's kind of a bittersweet moment because he's been banished and is on his way out of Iceland. But mm. Viglin once again asks her to wait for him. And Kettlerid reiterates that she can't promise anything since her father will decide her marriage fate for her. Boy, the author is really hammering that theme home, yeah. Oh, Absolutely. Yeah, this is clearly something very much on his mind, but he's got a surprise in store for us. So anyway, Kettlerid washes and cuts Vigeland's hair for him. and um, As one does when one's dead lover turns up alive. Well, that's what I'm trying to say, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Vigeland swears an oath that no one but Kettlerid will cut or wash his hair as long as she is alive. In fact, he later composes a verse about just this subject. The faithful linen tree gently stroked my locks. Hence I'm in no hurry to have another wash. Never shall another, though near to her in grace, goddess of the bowl, bathe me in my lifetime. Now, that's a strange oath, (laughs) but it's not an unprecedented one. Uh, No, it it actually mirrors the oath taken by King Harold Fairhair, formerly known as Tangle Locks or Shaggy Hair, uh, not Mm. to cut or comb his hair until he completed his conquest of Norway. And, of course, there's a a point later in the story when Vigeland's companions get a wash and perm, and Vigeland refuses because of his oath to Kellerid. A wash and perm? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and before (laughs) Vigeland goes, he speaks a verse for Kettlerid. Pretty maiden, take my poem if it please you, delivered to delight you, brooch bearer, now and then. When your eyes, Freya, espy the eyelid garth, your mind will seek me, slender maid, each time. And that's actually fairly typical of England's poetry. Not a technical masterpiece by any means, just no. a simple bit of verse, but again, it does establish a more romantic feeling. Right, but it's not the end of this part of the story. Um, after the brothers ride off, Holmkill finds Kellerid crying. He reveals that he's known for a while that Vigeland and Trousty survived, which we didn't know before this point. Mm-hmm. And he presses her to tell him what will make her happy. And Kettlerid finally tells her father that she wants to marry Vigeland and no one else. Now brace yourselves, because after nearly a year of working our way through these warrior poet sagas... We're about to see something we've never seen before. Holmkell the father is okay with this, and he <laughs> rides out to tell Vigeland to go ahead. Are, are you sure you're reading that right? He's not going to try to kill him. No, no. Vigeland 
though, avoids him on the road. <laughs> so well, yeah, he's he's probably read the other sagas. He yeah. knows how this sort of thing usually goes. Comedy of errors. <laughs> yeah, his brother has definitely read them before. He mentions casually that the best chance Veeglin has of getting Kettlerid is to take advantage of the moment and kill Homekill. <laughs> oh, can you imagine? <laughs> okay, but we should say in Trousty's defense, he does say it would be a bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> I, I actually, I have to say, I actually kind of like Trousty. He doesn't get a lot of dialogue, but he's got this weirdly sardonic worldview. He does. Anyway, Veeglin finds a message on the road after having hidden... Maybe behind the haystacks that uh, Einar and uh, Yokel used. <laughs> uh, Holmkel left him a pouch of money and a rune stick that recounts everything Kettlerid said. So now Vigland and Kettlerid are all set to be married, right? Yeah, I know. I know we've done the so that's the end of the saga bit before, <laughs> but this really should be the conclusion. Everything's all wrapped up. Yeah, except that there's this outlawry thing hanging over the brothers' heads. Oh, and Kettlerid's mother Thorbjorg. She's still trying to marry Kettlerid off, this time to a neighbor named Thorleif Steinolfsson. There's always something. Yeah. So Vigland and Trousty reveal their true identities once they're on Gunlaug's ship, and it turns out that Sigurd knew who they were because of their sister, Helga. Now, do you read that uh, the same way I do, that uh, Helga, their sister, ratted them out? No, no, I don't think so. I, th- I think it means that he spent a lot of time with Helga. Remember, he's fallen in love with her. Mm-hmm. And he recognizes Vigland as her brother due to a family resemblance. Sure he does. Well, <laughs> the four of them, <laughs> they decide to travel directly to Kettle's home, where Gunlaug and Sigurd confront their father with this new alliance, and they force him to accept it after all. Mm. That's old world power losing to new world power. That's Indeed. kind of important. Sigurd then proposes that Gunlaug mediate a settlement between the families. Isn't he called Gunlaug the Boisterous? Mm-hmm. You wouldn't think he would be the first choice for negotiating a delicate truce between two kin groups. <laughs> Why isn't Sigurd the Wise the one arbitrary treating? Well, there's a very good reason for that. Gunlaug's settlement proposal involves a transfer of property rights from Thorgrim's wife, Olaf, to Kettle. <laughs> Uh, which is irrelevant to Olaf, since she and Thorgrim are personae non grata in Norway. Sure, but the important part of the settlement is a double marriage bond. He proposes that his brother marry Helga Thorgrim's daughter, while oh, Trausti will marry Ingebjörg Kettle's daughter, who's now old enough and it's not as creepy as when Harold Fairhair tried to offer her to Trausti's father years ago. <laughs> in fact, she's probably kind of old. Uh, wow. Uh, okay. So ignoring for the moment the still slightly twisted nature of marrying Trousty off to a woman his father was once offered as a wife, <laughs> uh, this creates a tight bond among the two sets of brothers. Yes, it does. Right. Now, this is exactly the sort of bond we saw go terribly wrong in Gisli's saga. But when it does work, it essentially knits two kin groups into one. Mm-hmm. Especially when they want to do it. Right. Um, in fact, from this point on in the saga, the four of them are referred to as the Sworn Brothers. So... Mm. Now these sworn brothers spend three years traveling and raiding together while they wait out the sentence of outlawry against Vigland and Trousty. Um And if this was a typical warrior poet saga, we might actually spend some time seeing some of this stuff happen. Right, um, right. Hearing about, their about what they're up to. But not here. That's not the point. Uh, the others are very happy, but Vigland can't help pining for Kettlerid the entire time. Right. And meanwhile, one last complication crops up in Iceland that threatens to derail our happy ending. No! Kettlerid's evil mother is pushing hard for Thorleif Steinolfsson to win Kettlerid's hand by any means necessary. Yeah, he must be really ugly and awful. <laughs> That's why she wants him. Um, at this point in the story, she's lost any motivation beyond just hating her daughter and wanting her to be miserable. 
Well, okay. I mean, to play devil's advocate, Viglin did kill her sons. Oh, come on. He had a good reason, but I can sort of see why she wouldn't be a big fan of ending up with him as a son-in-law. I wish someone would push her down a well. <laughs> wow. Uh, so Vigland and Thorleaf are both seemingly out of luck at this point because Kettlerid's father suddenly offers her in marriage to a rich elderly suitor named Thord of the Eastfjords. Oh. You know, at this point, I was I was just beaten down, and I figured, yep, that's the formula. No, <laughs> right. no, nothing's gonna work out here. Uh, so, mm-hmm. uh, but, but a savvy reader should spot that there is something fishy about this guy. Mm-hmm. He's coming from across the island. He's got no patronymic surname, and he arrives shortly after Kettlewood's father sends some of his men on a secret mission. But Kettlewood isn't a savvy reader. No. She's Neither was upset. I, to be quite honest. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, so a theoretical savvy reader. Yeah. If one were present. If one were uh, present and thinking right. about these things at the time. Uh, now, Kellerid is upset by what she sees as her father's betrayal of her mm-hmm. and remains grim-faced and silent throughout the wedding. Yeah, but there are hints that she eventually learns something's up. She and Thord return to his home after the wedding, but... Their sleeping arrangements are designed to keep her virtue intact. And I must say, I did get right. a little suspicious at this point. Uh-huh. Yeah, we're told quite clearly that Thord did not celebrate his wedding with her. But regardless of whatever scheme is afoot, no one tells Vigland about it at all. And uh-huh. so he returns to Iceland and eventually makes his way to the Eastfjords, where he stumbles onto the farm where Thord and Kettlerid live. He's very angry, and he's upset to learn that she's gotten married again. And he kind of loses his mind a little bit. Understandably so. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, it gets pretty bad. Uh, In fact, one night, he creeps over to where Thord and Kettlerid are sleeping, stares down at them, and begins to draw his sword. This reminded me very much of a Gisli saga. You see, it reminded me of Norman Bates. (laughs) (laughs) Is he wearing his mother's dress and wig? (laughs) no, but it, it absolutely is a parallel to Gisli's saga. Uh, and things could get very messy in a hurry here. Mm-hmm. But Trousty sees what Vigland is doing and tells him in no uncertain terms to man up and not shame himself. Trust in Trousty. That's there my motto. Go. He even adds a verse. You'll never, breaker of rings, win the maid in wedlock if you harm the good ruler of Fafnir's great realm. Dealing blows with weapons does not solve dilemmas. We two brothers must behave beyond blame and reproach. Is Trousty also known as Mr. Ed, the uh, talking horse? What? Because he sounds a lot like him. (laughs) You'll never a breaker of rings. Bring the maid in wedlock. (laughs) That's Uh, very different. Yeah, anyone under 30 has no idea what we're talking about. (laughs) So this is actually another new piece to add to the Poet Saga genre. The poet's Mm -hmm. brother is composing verses. Right, well, I mean, there's a reason that not everyone agrees the saga belongs with the others. Mm. Uh, What I think is most interesting about this is that Trousty's verses are at least as well composed as Vigeland's. Oh, yeah. And seem to show greater erudition. In any case, this verse is enough to bring Vigeland back to reality and... He goes back to bed. So, so this goes on for a while. A little anticlimactic. Um, it really is. But it's, it, it is it is this uh, moment when you see Viglin kind of right at the edge of becoming oh, yeah. a criminal. Um, so the brothers end up staying with Thord for the winter. 
and in the spring he goes on a trip and asks them to watch over his farm. And, of course, the implication being also to watch over his bride. Mm -hmm. Um, When he returns a month later, he has all their friends from the West with him. Their parents, Thordrim and Olaf, their sister, Helga. No way. Sigurd and Gunlog, their sworn brothers. Kellerid's father, Holmkill, and all their friends and relations. Suddenly, it's an episode of This Is Your Life. Yeah. And even then, Vigeland has to have the whole thing explained to him. Yeah. Thor <laughs> reveals himself to be Helgi, the son of Earl Eric of Rogaland. Surprise! Okay. <laughs> now, that was a surprise. Yeah. This is one of those late-in-the-saga cameos, like Ari Sursen showing up in the final paragraphs of Gisli's saga to avenge his brother. Yeah. And if anyone hasn't been keeping score uh, of all the names in this saga, which is understandable, uh, mm-hmm. remember that way back at the beginning of the saga, Thorgrim was introduced as the illegitimate son of Earl Eric, who also had two legitimate sons. Right. So Helgi is actually Thorgrim's half-brother mm-hmm. and Vigeland's uncle. Unbelievable. Exactly. We learned that Holmkel, Thorgrim, and Helgi cooked up this whole thing to protect Kettlerid from her mother's plots to marry her off and to preserve her for Vigeland. How nice. It's lovely, which means the only issue still to be resolved is Holmkel's feelings about Vigeland having killed his sons. They were terrible sons, admittedly, but they were still the only ones he had. And even this gets resolved happily. Vigeland mm. kneels in front of Holmkel, who says, Better that your head stay on your neck. For that would please my daughter more. That's a nice line to end it on. Yeah. Uh, and that's it. Uh, Vigeland and Kettlerid are finally able to marry. And since Gunlog is the only remaining bachelor among the sworn brothers, he gets married to Helgi Eriksson's daughter, Ronhild, because why not? <laughs> Cementing the four friends and their spouses together as one happy family. That's right. We get the rarest of things in the sagas. A truly and completely happy ending for all. Indeed. Uh, and something else that's interesting about this particular saga is that it ends with uh, a little coda. The saga author writes, thanks, yes, it does. Be, thanks be to the one who composed the stories and wrote them down. Amen. So thanks thanks to me for writing this, essentially? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Nice. Or maybe saying that there's a, a copier. Uh, but the amen at the end is something that intrigues me a great deal. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, just because our young lovers are together, it doesn't mean our work is done. We need to unpack a little bit of that. Um, and we also <laughs> have some judgments to hand out. Oh, yes. And I think we've both got some things to say about this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that'll have to wait for our next episode. Until then, you can follow us on Twitter at SagaThingPod. Check us out on Facebook at SagaThingPodcast. And go to our website, SagaThingPodcast.wordpress.com. Email us at SagaThingPodcast at gmail.com or something like that. Anything else, John? Uh, No, just uh, until next time. Thanks for listening and bye for now. When your eyes, Freya, espy the eyes... Islet? Islet. No, it's Islet. Wendy made fun of me last time. Islet. It's Islet. Hang on. I don't know. But uh, last time, I think we said Islet, and uh, my wife was very upset with us because she mispronounced everything. And she finally got me. She's, She's right. Yeah. She's right. Wow. I've always said Islet. Not anymore.